We read the holy and inspired word of God tonight from Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Read the first 11 verses of Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you. To me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit, Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh, though I might also have confidence in the flesh. If any other man thinketh that he hath, whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more, circumcised the eighth day, the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, Touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Read the Word of God that far tonight. The text for our sermon are verses 10 and 11. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ, what is the great desire of your heart? What is the consuming ambition of your life? What's more important to you than any other thing, so that you're ready to give up all of those things, but for that one thing. Someone would examine your heart, your life, what would they conclude would be the answer to that? 
What is it that you live for? What is it that dominates your thinking? What is it that controls your speech? Would the answer to that be self? Would it be the pursuit of some sin? Would it be the things of this world? Money, pleasures, possessions? What is it that is the most important thing for our homes and for our families? Is it the house we live in and the fact that it's well furnished? Is it that we have children who are successful in this world and in earthly life? What's our great desire? What's the consuming ambition of our lives? And if the answer to that question is anything other than Jesus Christ, knowing Him, something is wrong in our hearts and in our lives. Belonging to Jesus Christ, partaking of Him and all of His wonderful benefits as that was signified and sealed to us this morning in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. The only proper response and the only proper effect of that in our lives is that this then is what grips us, it's what consumes us, it's what's most important to us, it's Jesus Christ. Knowing Him and knowing Him more and more. That's set forth in the Word of God before us tonight. In the preceding context, in the first three verses of this chapter, the Apostle Paul warns the saints in Philippi against dogs, evil workers, and the concision, or that could be translated the mutilation. What he's referring to there is the serious error of the Judaizers. These were those who had grown up as Jews, who had supposedly converted to Christianity, but who said that in order for Gentile converts to belong to the Christian church, they had to submit themselves to the Old Testament rite of circumcision. And what they were doing was bringing God's New Testament people back under the terrible bondage of the Old Testament law and teaching them to ground their confidence for salvation in their keeping of the law and this outward mark. After warning against that in the first three verses, the apostle continues with that warning in verses 4 through 9, but now using himself as a personal example in effect, the apostle is saying there, I've, I've lived this way and I can tell you from my own life and my own experience that this only ends in misery and loss. I can look at my life and I can try and stack up all of the things that I have by way of status and achievement and he does that in the verses that are there. And he speaks foolishly. 
If there's anyone who could put their trust in all those earthly things, the Apostle says, I could do that. And I did that. What I came to find out, he says, is that all of that is a loss. Worse than that, it's, it's dung. It's filth. If that becomes the foundation for my confidence in salvation, and what I've come to see now is that none of that becomes the, the basis of confidence and salvation. But my salvation, my righteousness is in Jesus Christ alone. And then having set forth the heart of the gospel of salvation, in Jesus Christ in our righteousness alone in Him, the apostle then in the text speaks of what's the result or what's the effect of that in the life of the redeemed, justified child of God. He indicates what is the, the soul desire. What it is that grips him and consumes him in his life. And it's this. That I may know Jesus Christ. Consider this text tonight, taking as our theme, that I may know him. First, let's consider what this means. Then secondly, how this applies to the present. And finally, how this applies to the future. Apostle indicates that his greatest ambition and the purpose of his life is that I may know him. And it's clear from the context that the him is the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean then to know Jesus Christ? When we think about what it means to know another person or to have knowledge, what we think of first of all is an intellectual comprehension of facts and information. Most basically that's what knowledge is. It's the comprehending of certain facts and information, and that is included in this idea of knowing Jesus. To know Jesus Christ means that we know He's the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. To know Jesus Christ means we know He has two natures, divine and human, united in the one person so that He's fully God and fully man. To know Jesus Christ is to know that He humbled Himself came into this world, born of a virgin, suffered all of his life long, gave his life at the cross to pay for our sins, rose again from the dead, ascended up into heaven, poured out his Holy Spirit upon the church, and that he's coming again one day in glory to judge. To know Jesus Christ does mean that we comprehend certain facts and information about him. But to know Jesus Christ is far more than that. We may never limit what it is to know Him as simply a head full of facts about Him. This knowledge of Jesus Christ that the Apostle speaks of here is not just a knowledge of the head, it's a knowledge of the heart. It's the difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. 
knowledge is a personal knowledge. It may be the case when we hear others talk about a personal knowledge of Jesus Christ and a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that we become a bit nervous about that and wonder if that language is a bit too emotional or a bit too wishy-washy, but that's not the case. The simple fact is to know Jesus Christ is to know Him personally. To know Jesus Christ is to know Him personally, standing in a relationship with Him. In the Scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, the Word of God uses the word know to convey the reality of a close, intimate relationship. For instance, in Genesis 4, verse 1, we read that Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. And it's obvious that that knowledge is the knowledge of his wife in the love, closeness, and warmth of their marriage relationship, including knowing his wife sexually. Now, we may take that concept too far and try and apply the sexual union to our relationship to Jesus Christ. But what the point is here is that that concept of knowing indicates that one stands in a close relationship of love. To know Jesus Christ means that we have been brought into fellowship with Him, that we live closely with Him. In fact, so closely that we are united to Him. He in us and we in Him so that we are flesh of His flesh and bone of His bone. To know Jesus Christ is to abide with Jesus Christ, to dwell closely with Jesus Christ. It's to hear Jesus Christ speak to us as He reveals the secrets of the divine will for our salvation. And it's to speak to Him and to bring all of our needs and our cares to Him. To know Jesus Christ is to live in fellowship with Him. To know Jesus Christ is to know Him in love. This knowledge is the knowledge of love. And it's first of all, the knowledge of Christ's love for me. The fact that Jesus loves us means that at its heart He views us as dear, and precious, and delightful to Him. To know Jesus Christ, to dwell in communion with Him means that we know this is who we are, this is how we're viewed by Him, we're His precious people. And to know Jesus Christ means that we respond in love for Him, knowing His love for us. We love the Lord Jesus Christ. We view Him as dear and precious and delightful. And there's nothing that can compare and that can compete with Him. To know Jesus Christ is to know Him in the knowledge of faith. In the preceding verses, the Word of God makes plain that Jesus Christ cannot truly be known unless He's known the full
full and complete Savior from sin. We do not truly know Jesus Christ if Jesus Christ is only half a Savior, if our salvation is partly dependent upon Him, but then it's also partly dependent upon me and upon who I am and the things that I've achieved. And if I'm putting my trust and my confidence for salvation in myself, then I don't truly know Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is known as the full and complete Savior from sin. He's known with the knowledge of faith, the knowledge of trust, and total dependence upon Him. I know Jesus Christ is far more than being able to recite facts about Him. It's to know Him in the warmth of fellowship. It's to know Him in love, to know Him in faith and trust. Christian life can be summarized as that. It's to know Jesus Christ. The Apostle indicates that in the surrounding context. Not talking here as if it's his desire, one who never knew Jesus Christ, that he wants to know Jesus Christ. He speaks as one who's been redeemed, who knows Jesus Christ, and whose life as one redeemed and justified is knowing Christ and growing in that knowledge of Christ. In verse 7, the details of the, the words and the tenses of the verbs indicate there that what he's referring to is what happened on the road to Damascus. When as a, a good Pharisee who trusted in himself for salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ took a hold of him. Brought the apostle to know that salvation is only in him. And that his trust in all of these other earthly things for salvation is only loss. And then in verse 8, the language and the tenses of the words there indicate that what he's referring to then and what, and what follows is the rest of his life. Not only that one moment, but the whole of his life lived thereafter. And that continues into verse 10 when he talks there about knowing Jesus. This is our life as redeemed, justified believers. If there's any that do not know Jesus Christ, then they must hear the serious call and command of the Word of God to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. For we who have been given the gift of faith, who have been brought to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, our life is a life of faith, a life of knowing Jesus Christ and even growing throughout our life in that knowledge of Him. So that the Lord Jesus Christ and what He's done for us becomes more and more precious to us. That our love for Jesus Christ grows deeper and deeper. And our trust and our dependence upon Him for all things is more and more consistent.
this is, this ought to be, the great desire and the sole ambition of our lives as believers. The apostle is expressing in the text that that's true of him. There's nothing that's more important than to know Jesus Christ. He indicates that partly by what he says in verse 8, where first that knowledge of Christ is mentioned. He says there the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. And the word excellency there refers to what is far surpassing, what is above and beyond everything else. The knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord is surpassing. It's most excellent. It's far and above anything and everything else. The importance of that is indicated by the fact that the apostle circles back to that here in verse 10. Having mentioned the importance of that knowledge in verse 8, he comes right back to that again in verse 10. And he's indicating there what is the the purpose of his life, what it is that is his great desire as one who belongs to Jesus Christ, has imputed to him the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's to know Jesus Christ, to know him more and more. The Apostle Paul was a man consumed with Christ. Go through the book of Philippians and that comes out in every chapter. In chapter 1, the Apostle describes his life and he says, this is what it is to live, for me to live is Christ. And then he says, to die is gain. And why is death gain? Well, then I go to be with Christ, which is far better. It's Christ in life. It's Christ in death. In chapter 2, the apostle is setting forth practically the importance of unity and humility in the church of Jesus Christ. And that's all grounded in the staggering humility of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God, and yet humbled himself and came into this world as a servant, was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now here in chapter 3, the apostle sets forth beautifully the truth of the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ, and that his life is this, it's, it's knowing Jesus Christ. The apostle is a man who's gripped the Lord Jesus Christ and the knowledge of Him. Setting that forth, the Word of God is not isolating the Apostle Paul as if he's some super saint and that's only true of him and it's not true of us as children of God. This is our life. Setting that forth, the Word of God is guarding us against Dangers. We live in the midst of a world that is pleasure mad and entertainment crazed and money hungry. You'd examine the lives of the people of this world, what it is that they live for, what they talk about, what they think about. It's it's this life, it's self, it's sin, it's it's the things of this world. 
And the mindset and the attitudes of this world can very easily creep into the church and creep into our lives and influence us. We may never think that we're so strong and we're so immune to to the world around us that none of that will ever be true of us. How weak is our own faith in Christ? How often doesn't our love for Christ cool? How often isn't the case that our desires and goals and dreams all have to do with this world and the things of this world? So that we can say of the Lord Jesus Christ and to know Him, that's my life and that's the most important thing. And then with how I live and what I think about and what I talk about, it's very obvious that it's something other than that. It's it's myself or it's sin or it's the pursuit of this world and money and pleasures and getting ahead and getting a name for myself. We look at our own life, we examine that honestly, each one of us has to confess that reality, that this isn't what always lives in my heart, this isn't what is always my greatest desire, to know Christ. And yet that is, and that must be true of us. To know Jesus Christ is certainly to know all the other benefits of salvation in Him. To know Christ means we know the forgiveness of sins. It means we have the, the hope of heaven. But first and fundamentally, it's Christ. What is our focus is not on the gifts. It's the giver. It's not the blessings, first of all. It's the one who blesses. grips us. Christ. Knowing Jesus Christ. What possesses and consumes us. What is the great ambition and desire and purpose of our lives. It's knowing Jesus Christ our Savior. It's that that gets us up out of bed in the morning. It's that that characterizes the whole of our life. It's that that We reflect upon with thanks when we lay down at the end of the the day. It's that we know Jesus Christ. Nothing that can compare to that. The attitude of the child of God is take everything else away if you must. If I have to lose everything else for the sake of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, then, then take it all away. Because there's nothing at all that can compare with this, that I know Him. I know Him in the fellowship of the covenant, and I know Him in the the warmth of His love for me, and I know Him in faith as the only Savior from sin. This 
is our desire. This is the purpose of our life. That I may know Jesus Christ. Having set that forth, the Word of God then lists several other things here. And we may interpret that as a long list of a bunch of different things. Text at its heart is this. It's about knowing Jesus Christ. Now, the things that are listed after that are all encompassed in what it is to know Jesus Christ. The text first indicates two things with respect to the implications of knowing Jesus Christ for our present life in this world. First of all, to know Jesus Christ is to know Him in the power of His resurrection. The idea of power is the capability to carry out a certain work or certain tasks. And the power that's in view here is the power of God at work in us, in our lives as redeemed Christians, in our walk of sanctification. It's evident from the fact that the Apostle is describing his present life in the world as one who was converted on the road to Damascus as one who is righteous in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In our text, he's describing the life that follows thereafter. It's knowing Christ. It's knowing the power of His resurrection in our life. And that has to do with the power of God in our sanctification. Another indication that that's the meaning of the text is that it's specifically the power of the resurrection. And the scriptures often connect the power of the resurrection with the life that we live as children of God in this world. For example, Romans 6 verse 4 says that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the power of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. We ought to notice the important and proper connection that the passage then makes between our justification and our sanctification. Verse 9 especially, the preceding verse, the Word of God is speaking of justification, our righteousness, the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ which is reckoned to our account. Our righteousness is not the righteousness of the keeping of the law, The righteousness which is of God by faith. Now, verse 10 is talking about the power of the resurrection of Christ in our life. That's our sanctification. We may never confuse those two concepts. Those two great saving works of Christ in our lives. They must always be kept distinct one from another. At the same time, we need to realize that they're inseparably connected to each other. Those whom God justifies, He always then sanctifies. To be righteous in Jesus Christ is then to know Him and the power of His resurrection. 
What a tremendous power that is. When we think about the Christian life, when we think about the Christian life from our own experience, it doesn't often seem to us to be a great power. Because the Christian life for us is slogging through the, the muck and the filth of our sin in this life. One man put it, it's slugging it out in the, in the trenches and the battle of faith against our spiritual enemies. And from our own perspective, as we examine our own life, it doesn't seem as if there's this great power. And there's truth to that in that we are so weak and so sinful and we have in this life only ever a small beginning of the new obedience. And yet, the Word of God indicates the power of God, the tremendous power of God at work in us. That power is the power to deliver us from the awful, crushing bondage of sin. It's the power that dethrones Satan and sin from the throne of our hearts. It's the power whereby we who by nature are haters of God and haters of the neighbor are made to be those who love God and love the neighbor. It's the power whereby we're strengthened to deny ourselves, to crucify our sinful lust, to fight against temptation, sinful pride and selfishness and anger and all of the rest. And it's the power whereby we desire and we begin to live in obedience to God, putting off sin and walking in Humility and selflessness and patience and all the rest. What an awesome power. It's the power of God and His grace at work in us presently. That power is the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ can't understand the resurrection apart from the death of Christ. In his death, the Lord Jesus Christ dealt conclusively with the power of death, which is our sin. He took upon himself the guilt of the sins of his people. Bearing our guilt, he endured the punishment that we deserved, which was the wrath of God and the curse and the agonies of hell at the cross and having endured that to the full he satisfied and atoned for our sins it was necessary for him yet to go into the grave to show that he had truly died to experience the full reality of death but his resurrection was assured having dealt with the power of death in the grave and dealing with our sin it was inevitable that he would rise again victoriously. And in the resurrection, there's displayed the awesome power of God. Whereby Jesus Christ is revealed and declared to be the victor over sin, death, grave, and hell. 
to belong to Jesus Christ is to belong to him in his death and his resurrection. To be united to Jesus Christ is to partake of the power of his resurrection. So that awesome power that's at work in us is nothing less than power whereby the Lord Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. The power of Jesus Christ as the victor over sin and death and the grave and hell. The word of God indicates here that what is our great desire is to know Jesus Christ and to know him in the power of his resurrection. The Apostle Paul in the preceding context has exposed and condemned the false teaching that would have God's people put their trust in themselves and their own working and achievements. And some might conclude that then, well, the Apostle Paul has, has cut the nerve of a Christian life then. Why would the child of God live a Christian life? That's not at all the case. Far from cutting the nerve of the Christian life by setting forth our righteousness in Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul has laid the foundation of the Christian life. Some might try to get God's people to live a godly life by heaping upon them the burden of, of the guilt of their sin. Some might try to stir them up to a godly life by by filling their heart with fear regarding the judgment of God. Some might try to get them to live that way by stirring up in them a sinful ambition to, to work, to earn with God. None of those things are the motive of the Christian walk of life. It's not the burden of guilt and it's not the terrible fear of judgment and it's not an ambition to to earn something. Thankful love. We know Jesus Christ. We know Jesus Christ as the only Savior from sin. We know Jesus Christ in His Love for us and the only response that can come from that is that we want to serve Him. We want to know Jesus Christ and to know Him and the, the power of His resurrection in our life. Grateful love for what He's done in saving us from our sin. Word of God then serves to apply to us tonight the reality of our partaking of Christ as that was signified in the Lord's Supper. It was signified to us there as that we're united to Christ, we partake of Him, His righteousness, all His benefits, we know Him. Knowing Him and all of His saving power want to serve him then, to know him in the power of his resurrection.
the first implication of what it means to know Jesus Christ in our present life in this world. The second thing that the Word of God mentions by way of the implication of that for life in this world is this. The fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death. But to remember right from the beginning that we do not share in the atoning suffering of Christ. From that point of view, the suffering of Jesus Christ is wholly unique. The suffering that we endure in this life cannot compare to the suffering of Jesus Christ because His suffering was the suffering of the wrath of God and His suffering was the only atoning suffering for sin. Our suffering is not that suffering. With that being understood that the suffering of Jesus Christ is unique, we do have fellowship in the sufferings of Jesus Christ that is suffering for His sake. That's what the text is indicating when it talks about our being made conformable unto His death. The life of Jesus Christ was directed always to the cross. It was a life of suffering. And for we who belong to Jesus Christ, our life also is in the shape of the cross. It's a life of suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1 verse 24 speaks of that. Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. The apostle speaks of filling up what is behind of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Not that Christ did some of the suffering for sin and then we we do the rest. Again, Christ suffered wholly for sin. Christ left behind for us the suffering of persecution for his sake. That's what the text is referring to specifically. It's not referring to all the different sufferings and trials that God's people bear. But specifically, the suffering of persecution for Christ's sake. We live in a day and age in which it doesn't live in the forefront of our minds. We live in a society where we still have the freedom to worship Train our children to live a godly life in the midst of this world. But there is suffering. There's the suffering of mockery, the suffering of reproach and ridicule, the suffering of being cut off being ostracized, our place in this world being very small. And yes, the day will come when the suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ will be the loss of livelihood or the threat to our families or the giving up of our own life. To suffer for the sake of Christ is a privilege. Apostle indicates that 
He's saying again, this is the great desire of his life, to know Jesus Christ. To know him in the power of his resurrection and to know him in the fellowship of his sufferings. The apostle doesn't desire suffering for suffering's sake. He doesn't have a twisted desire to experience pain and sorrow. He views suffering for the sake of Christ to be a privilege because of what Jesus Christ has done for him. Christ has given his life for Paul, and Paul is ready now in thanks to give his life suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. In the midst of that suffering, we come to see in a very, very small way the unimaginable suffering of Jesus Christ. So that when we suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ, we come to realize that what we have to suffer really is nothing, though difficult it may be, nothing compared to what Jesus Christ has suffered. And in the midst of that suffering, to know Jesus Christ in our trusting and relying upon Him. In the midst of affliction, we're brought to see that our only source of strength To bear up under that suffering is the Lord Jesus Christ so that our faith in Jesus Christ is strengthened. It's too. It's how we view suffering. Suffer for the sake of Christ is a privilege. Sadly, we're often scared of what it means to suffer fear other people and what they might say about us or what they might do about us so that rather than boldly confess the name of Jesus Christ, we we look for an excuse, an out. Suffering for Christ is a privilege. Suffer for Jesus Christ is a privilege because we're honored to do that for the sake of the one who gave Himself in an entirely unique way for us. In giving Himself to deliver us from our sin. Therefore, in thanks, we're ready to give our life for the sake of Christ and His cause. This is our great desire. This is the heart of our life to know Jesus Christ. To know Him in the power of His resurrection. To know Him in the fellowship of His suffering. The Word of God in our text concludes by pointing out the implications of what it means to know Jesus Christ for the future. And that's verse 11. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. We know Jesus Christ. To know Jesus Christ means that we know and are confident of our resurrection from the dead. When the Lord Jesus Christ returns, all who have ever lived and died upon the earth will be raised again. God's people to the resurrection to glory 
the unbelieving and impenitent to the resurrection of damnation. And for us as children of God, we'll be raised and made like Jesus Christ so that while it's the same body that was placed into the ground that comes up again, that body is changed, it's transformed, it's made like Jesus Christ in power and honor and immortality. The Bible constantly holds before us as children of God the resurrection as our great hope and longing. Time and time again, the Word of God holds the resurrection before us. It's easy for us when we think about life and think about death to have our focus be upon heaven after we die. Certainly that's an important part of our comfort that when I die and my body goes into the ground, I know that my soul goes immediately to heaven to be with Jesus. While that's part of our hope and comfort, that's not the ultimate hope and comfort. And our faith may not only be upon when I die, my soul goes to heaven. That's a, a temporary state. In heaven, we have only a disembodied soul. And our ultimate hope is for the resurrection when not just in soul, but also in body, we will be raised and made perfect. And we'll live in a new, redeemed creation. That's our ultimate hope and longing. It's for the resurrection of the dead and life everlasting with God New heavens and a new earth. There, the focus will be on God in Christ. Our desire for the resurrection in the end is not, first and foremost, what that means for me. It certainly means so much. Will we have joy in being delivered wholly from sin and temptation? Absolutely. Will part of our joy be that the church of Jesus Christ is all united together again without anything to divide her? Absolutely. Is part of our hope and longing that the the creation is redeemed and we're in the new creation? Absolutely. But at its heart, everlasting life will be this, knowing Jesus. To know Him in a way that we've not known Him on this earth. We know Him now. We know Him as Savior and in the wonder of His blessings. But that knowledge is Not what it will be on account of the weakness of who we are as earthly creatures on account of our sin and our weakness of faith. But then we'll know Him. And we'll know Him in all of perfection and we'll 
continue to grow in that knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ forever and ever. And we'll know Him even as we are known. That will be the, the greatest joy and bliss of life everlasting in the resurrection that we know Jesus Christ. Now the Apostle says at the beginning of verse 11, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. At first glance, that sounds as if it's very uncertain. As if the Apostle perhaps is doubting the power of God or doubting his own partaking of that. That's not the point of the Word of God here. It's not an expression of doubt on the part of the Apostle that he will be raised again and live with Christ forever. He puts it that way partly as an expression of humility. For good Pharisee Saul, Prior to what happened to him on the road to Damascus, it wouldn't have surprised him for a moment that he would be saved and that he would be raised again and that he would live forever in the new creation. It wouldn't have surprised him for a moment. He had done all of these things. He had this status. He had this whole resume of achievements that he could ground his hope and confidence for the future in. For Paul, after what happened on the road to Damascus, it never ceased to amaze him. In awe and wonder, he considered that he was saved, that he knows Christ, that he has the hope of the resurrection. How can it be? By stating the Word of God this way, the Apostle is expressing humility. The other thing that's indicated there is that this is an encouragement to himself and to the saints in Philippi to continue to press on in the Christian life. It's a life of struggling against sin and a walk of sanctification. It's a life of enduring reproach for the sake of Jesus Christ. And the Apostle is indicating by that language that this is what we can expect. First, the cross that is bearing a cross for the sake of Jesus Christ. Then, the resurrection. Not that our bearing of the cross of suffering earns for us that. But God's way of leading us is that He leads us through this life, through the suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. Finally then to glorify us. Romans 8 verse 17 makes that clear as well. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, adorn heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. In 2 Timothy 2 verses 11 and 12, the same, it is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with Him, we shall also live with Him if we suffer we shall also reign with Him. To encourage Himself and to encourage those saints to continue in the 
Christian life to bear reproach, holding before them the hope, the confidence, of the victory in the resurrection. That language of the text has good application to us to conclude. Truth of the gospel, as we considered last Sunday as well, ought to humble us. If there's pride in us, ultimately that means we've lost sight of the gospel. Because when I Consider the truth of the gospel and what it is to know Jesus Christ. Then the only appropriate response is utter humility. It's not, here I am with all of the things that are true of me and my status and my achievements. And yes, on the basis of that, I have all this confidence for the future and my salvation. Gospel is, uh, my salvation is in Jesus Christ. My righteousness is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And who am I to partake of those blessings? Who am I to belong to Christ and to know Jesus Christ? Who am I to know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings and the hope of the final resurrection? Me, how can it be? The truth of the gospel ought to humble, it also serves to encourage. We have before us certain confidence of the victory. We know Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is a Full and complete Savior. The resurrection is sure. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Knowing that. We're encouraged to press on. In our own walk of life. Christian life is. Slogging through the muck. And the filth of this life. And the struggle against sin. The Christian life is. Slugging it out in the trenches against our spiritual enemies. Taking up a cross. Following after the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, press on in that. Because what awaits you is life with Christ. There's glory. That's waiting. There's knowing Christ. Even as we are known. May that then encourage. Strengthen us. Press on in the walk of the Christian life. From day to day. Till Christ returns. Amen. Let's pray. Father who art in heaven, apply thy word to our hearts by thy spirit, 
comfort us in the knowledge and the confidence of our belonging to Christ. Increase our love for Him. Strengthen our faith and trust and reliance upon Him. Keep us from ever trusting in ourselves or any aspect of our salvation. Graciously blot out the sins that we've committed against Thee here. Grant, Father, that we're renewed by Thy Spirit and strength and zeal. Go forward in the week to come in our callings in this life. Hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.